Amen. Thank you, Jim. Thank you, worship team. If you have a copy of God's Word, meet me there in Romans 11, starting in verse 33, and we'll carry all the way into uh, Romans 12, 2. My name is Daniel. get the opportunity to serve here as one of the pastors and teach God's Word this morning. If one of your goals uh, for the new year was to be at church every single uh, Sunday, you're off to a great start with this being the first Sunday of uh, 2024. And we're not only kicking off the new year, but also uh, starting a brand new sermon series titled The Vision of Journey. And in this, uh, the next three weeks, a few just housekeeping things. The first thing is, is if you're a student who likes to read ahead, study ahead, we're going to be just walking through, starting in Romans 11:33 this morning, to the end of chapter 12. So if you want to just kind of camp out uh, on top of your normal scripture reading in Romans chapter 12 for the next couple of weeks, that's where we're going to be. Uh, and the second thing is, over this next three weeks, our goal is not to redefine church or who the body of Christ is. Really, we're targeting after the elders and I as we've been praying and planning and just dreaming about this series is we're simply asking the question, what's the next chapter of uh, Journey Church look like? Knowing that God's not done working in this local body of believers, what's just the next season of life and ministry at Journey look like for us? So with that in mind, this morning, we're targeting our, uh, the, the vision statement of our church and asking this question. Here's the question that I'm after from this text in Romans 11, 33 through 12, 2. What is the goal of God's work in the world and in our lives? What is the goal of God's work in our world and our lives? So with that in mind, let's jump into the text together. I'm gonna read it in its entirety and then we'll break it down. Verse 33, oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments, how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever, amen. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Let's break this down together in the text. The First thing we have to understand is the context that which we find ourselves in in the letter of Romans. It's always important to know where you're at in the grand narrative of Scripture of what you're reading. And for us, we're picking up not only just in the middle of a letter, but the back half of a very large letter with the uh, letter to the Romans in all the way in chapter 11. We've had 11 chapters of groundwork that we uh, have no knowledge of in this reading. We don't have time to read all 11 chapters, but we need to understand what Paul is getting at. And what Paul has been getting at up to this point is really targeting this one question is, will God remain faithful and loyal to those that have put their faith and trust in him? Will he indeed save them as he's promised? And Paul gets the answer to a resounding yes, and as he responds to this yes, at the end of chapter 11, he bursts forth into this kind of 
song, picking up on several Old Testament passages, but he starts off in verse 33 to call upon that the mind and the wisdom of God is far greater than we could ever wrap our minds around. That our finite human brain and capacity can't even fully understand the, the depth and the wisdom and the knowledge that is God's ways of working in the world. And then verses 34 and 35, he he goes on to say that no one has ever advanced anything to God that God should repay them. No one's ever, uh, God has never been indebted to anyone. That God has never been uh, a responder, but rather God is the one who set everything into motion by his created word, that he is the source, he's the agent, he is the goal of all things. They find their beginning, middle, and end in him. This is why in verse 36, he says this, he responds, for from him, through him, and to him are all things. From him, he's the source, he's the creator of it all. Through him, he's the agent at which all things are actively working in the world, that he is working actively. It's through him and to him that one day it's all gonna circle back around and end up back in his control. And then Paul stamps it with the last word, amen. You know, amen's not simply what we say to cue everyone to pick up their fork and begin to eat. But amen, rather, is a word of a stamp of affirmation that it's saying that, yes, I agree with everything that's been said up to this point. And Paul is saying, I agree that God is gonna be faithful to his promises. I agree that from him, to him, through him, all things. And he says that, his response is that to him be the glory forever. That word glory literally means honor or credit or renown. Who gets the credit for this? Who gets the credit for God being faithful to his promises? Who gets the credit for God remaining faithful unto those who has put their faith and trust in him? Who gets the renown? Whose name gets lifted higher than every other name? Well, it's God's name. To him alone. In this passage, a couple of months ago, when the elders and I were on a retreat together, we began to pray and just brainstorm and dream and open scripture to read several different doxology passages, which this was one of them to say, well, what's our purpose? What's the church's purpose? Not that we're more creative than any other church, but what is the church's purpose in this regard? And we went to this passage and other passages like Ephesians 3, Colossians 3, Jude 24 and 25 to to land that on this glory word where our vision is this, if you're taking notes or you can see this on the screen, it's to see God glorified through life change for the good of Jonesboro and beyond. Why do we exist? Why does every church exist? It's to glorify God. Paul says that it's every person's actual purpose is to glorify God, to him be the glory forever. Just a quick side note that this is our vision statement and next week we'll have to come back to hear the mission statement a, a vision statement is why something exists so so why do we as a journey church exist we exist to bring god glory we to see god glorified that it's not about any one individual and our name and our credit our weight being thrown around it's not about a name on a building it's not about any one individual but it's about god's name It's about his name getting the credit, getting the honor, getting the renown, if you will. And you're like, oh, that that sounds great, Daniel. That sounds wonderful and all, but how is that going to take place? That 
how is God most glorified? Well, let's see what Paul says, actually, because it's the next phrase that we're not being overly creative here. We're just seeing what Scripture says and saying it in the same way. It says, through life change. Okay, well, well, how does Paul talk about life change, if you will? Well, let's look at Romans 12, 1 and 2. If you have a copy of your Scriptures, let's dive in here to this passage. <clears throat> he says this, he says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. I want to break down these two verses phrase by phrase. The first phrase is, I appeal to you, therefore that Paul is urging those that he is talking to to respond, to do something with what they've been told. And there's the word therefore. And you know, the old preacher saying that anytime that you see a therefore in the scriptures, look above to see what therefore is there for, right? And so Paul here in this context is not just picking up on what he's immediately said. Like oftentimes they would say, you know, preachers say, read the paragraph before that. But I believe what Paul's really doing here is he's picking up on every word that he said up to this point to say, therefore. Like he's building on 11 chapters of groundwork and saying, therefore, respond like this. Well, we don't have time to read 11 chapters of Romans right now, but let me give you a brief overview of what Romans has said. And maybe this week you can go and read it for yourself. But Romans chapters one through three have made this kind of renowning statement that every single human being has fallen short of God's glory, that we are sinners. And then Romans 3 at the end to chapter 4 pick up and say that, but through Christ, we can be made right with God, that through Jesus and Jesus alone, that we have the opportunity to come to him in faith and trust, trusting in full assurance that he is the one who he says he is, and he's done what he says he's done. And because of that, we can be made right with God. And then Romans 5 through 8 talk about that because of this, because of being made right with God, that there is hope beyond the grave. There's hope that outlasts any of our physical bodies, that there is an eternal hope in Jesus Christ. And then Romans 9 to 11 talk about how God will indeed follow through on his plan of saving. That all of this is building up to this transitionary point in Romans 12, 1, where he says, I appeal to you, therefore... You are not right, but through Christ, you can be made right. And because you've been made right with God, there is hope beyond the grave. And God indeed will save all those who he says he will. He follows through on every promise. He says, I appeal to you, therefore, by the mercies of God. I want you to notice in the scriptures how the word mercies is not mercy. And what I mean by that is it's not in the singular form, but rather it's in the plural form. That I, and I believe that the reason that mercies is not just mercy is because when Paul's talking about what has God been merciful, how could I describe it in just one act? I can't, that there's so many instances in my life, in the scriptures, in the Old Testament, that we could talk about the mercies of God. That all the Bible is a testament of how God has relented and shown mercy to people who didn't deserve to get mercy. So when Paul's saying that I appeal to you based on how God has always been at work, showing us mercy, 
that all the scriptures, all of our lives could be depicted around the story of the mercies of God. And he says, therefore, by the mercies of God, present your bodies. This phrase in present your bodies is really a depiction of not just pieces of you, but your whole self. Let all of you. And there in Romans 12, 1, what I want to point out is when Paul says, I appeal to you, this word is actually in the second person plural. In Arkansas English, we would say that's y'all, all right? That's not just you, but that you is plural. So Paul is literally saying, I appeal to y'all, that all of y'all present your bodies. And so what is Paul talking about? That this is not an individual effort, but a joint effort. That the churches all together that everyone individually representing the the body of Christ, should all of us present all of ourselves to Christ. That this is what he's saying, and he's saying, I'm urging you, I'm pleading with you, I'm begging you based on what I've said, based on what you've seen, but based on how you've seen God work in the word, in the world, and in your life, all of you should present all of yourselves unto a living God. How? As a living sacrifice which is holy and acceptable to God as a living sacrifice. Paul here is picking up on an Old Testament image of a a reality that would be in the Old Testament, that there would be uh, many sacrifices that the people of Israel, they regularly, like other nations, sacrificed to their God. The difference was that it was an act of worship, a response to their God based on how his character and how he acted with them. And so it would be very common for uh, both the Jews and the Gentiles, the non-Jews, to understand what Paul's saying here of saying, present your bodies as a living sacrifice. That that there are, as a new crop of a herd of animals would be born, that there would be those who would be selected to be sacrificed. They were the ones who were usually firstborn, spotless, that they were... uh, you know, without a blemish in them and how they were born. And so they would say, hey, this one is the one that we're going to dedicate to the Lord and in an, a response of thanksgiving for having our herd be multiplied. So this one is set apart for the Lord. And so for us to say that they were a living sacrifice, that made sense. But the way that Paul turns this phrase is that there is not a time period at which this sacrifice is going to stop living. That would blow their minds. That doesn't make any sense. Because in order for something to be a sacrifice, there's a point at which it stopped living because it had to be sacrificed. It was living, now it's a sacrifice because now it's not living. But Paul says, present your bodies as a living sacrifice. He takes this Old Testament reality and expands this metaphor beyond our minds wrapping around it. Like, wait a second, how is it living and sacrifice? Living sacrifice? Like, they're probably scratching their heads like, how is this going to be the case? but we understand it based on how the next phrase, which is holy and acceptable to God. The word holy means set apart or set aside for this purpose. So Paul is saying that there were those in the Old Testament who were born to be set aside for God. But now, in light of everything that I've said, 
that you are sinners, that you've fallen short of God's glory, but because of the righteousness of the Son of God who left heaven and stepped down into earth, born of a virgin, had a sinless life, died a sacrificial death in your place and in my place, in light of that, I appeal to you because now you can respond, all of you who can be set aside for God. All of you because of Christ, not because of your good deeds, your good works, but now all of you can be a living sacrifice who is set aside for God and acceptable in his sight, not because of you, but because of him, because of Jesus. Now you all have the invitation to be set aside for God to live for him, not live for self, not live for pleasure, not live for sin, but live for him. And he says, which is your spiritual worship? That word spiritual is the complicated word in this phrasing because if we just simply passed a microphone around this room uh, to the hundred or so of us in this room right now and asked the simple question, what does the word spiritual mean? Define it and give me an example we would probably be here for a while because we would probably have a hundred different turn of phrases of what that word means and how it works. Because it's a complicated word. It's actually not used that often in the New Testament because the word by definition, if you break it down by the meaning, literally means a logical response based on evidence. A logical response based on evidence. And so for Paul to say, this is your spiritual worship. He's saying this is the only logical response that you can respond with with your life based on what you've seen God do in your midst, in the word, and in your life. This is the only thing that makes sense. The only thing that makes sense is you respond as a living sacrifice. You don't need another sacrifice to of the blood of a bull or a goat or an animal. No, you, you don't need any of that because there's already been a sacrifice. So now the only logical response for my life, for your life, for y'all's life, for our lives is for us to present ourselves to God in faith and trust to him in light of his son, in light of who Jesus is and what he's done in the word and in the world, how he's been the, the perfect sacrifice on our behalf. The only logical response for us is to live for him. That's the only thing that makes sense, Paul says. Paul says the, the only thing that makes sense is to live in this way. The thing that would not make sense is to respond any way differently. But he continues on in verse two, which it says, the, the how that you're gonna do this is do not be conformed to this world. Do not be conformed to this world because what does not make sense on the world standards is actually living in this way. How could you live in effort to honor God? How could you respond by living for him? Isn't following God just this transaction? No. He says, do not be conformed. The word conformed literally means to just fit a mold. Go with the flow, follow everything else. But rather when you are submitting yourself to God as your worship, to be carefully thought through, this word is rational, extremely rational. It says, in light of what he's done, this is how I respond. 
And if you respond in worship to live for him, you will be transformed, which is the next phrase, to do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed. The word transforms literally to change. To change. It could mean inwardly change or to change physical appearance. Like Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration is transformed. His outwardly appearance looks totally different. And when it looks totally different, the disciples are a little caught off guard and they're kind of like, ah, what is really happening right now? Um, but this word obviously doesn't mean that because it doesn't mean for us to put on different clothes or to put on makeup or have plastic surgery. That's not at all what it's saying. But it means to be different, to change inwardly by nature or character. That the product of living as a sacrifice that is set apart for God because of what Jesus has already done on our behalf and to be renewed in our mind is to over time progressively see life change, not just happen one time, but gradually look more and more like Jesus. You see, we're transferred from death to life in an instant through faith and trust in him. Paul builds this whole argument based on Abraham. When was Abraham justified? He says, by faith. In an instant, he transferred from death to life. But then Paul picks up on, but continue that process of looking more and more like Jesus. The point of being a Christian isn't checking a box on a religious survey and saying, yes, I want some fire insurance one day. But rather, it's a process of following Jesus, being a student or an apprentice, a follower of his, that says, I'm shaping my life around the way that Jesus lived, the what he taught, and I'm learning to live like he instructs based on his spirit working in my life. I am being transformed by the constant renewal of my mind, an ongoing process. You see, because what's so crazy about that transformation is you can't produce it on your own. I got caught in this rabbit hole this week based on a, a Facebook article that I clicked on and it made me all these different thoughts and I clicked all these different things because I wanted to, and I ended up Googling, how does honey become honey? Like I wanted to know, like I wanted to know the process of honey because it's probably to do with the past couple of weeks in our household, we've been battling the sniffles and the allergies and, and really adjusting back to the Southern pollen uh, from living in New York for a couple of years. And, and so uh, I wanted to know, we've been going through like bottles of honey, you know, our kids love it, we love it, all these different things, and tea, coffee, all these different things. And so I wanted to know, like, okay, how's this stuff become this stuff? Like, that's what I want to know. Because like, a bee doesn't really, a bee, honeybee makes it, but then they need flowers and pollen, nectar, all these different things. And, and I learned basically, you know, the science, the best we got is a bee goes around, collects some pollen, collects some nectar, goes back to the Hive spits it all out and flaps her wings really fast and boom, honey. Like, that's the best we got. Like, but it transforms it. A flower can't make honey by itself. A bee needs it, but it also has some of the ingredients to make it and it transforms. It becomes something totally different. And when the Spirit works in our lives and we fix our focus on the renewal of our mind, we become something noticeably different. That's what the word transform means. It means to become something noticeably different. How does your life as a follower of Jesus progressively look noticeably different? 
You see, in Jesus, before he left the world, in a passage called the Great Commission, he says to his disciples in verse 19 in Matthew 28, he says, go therefore and make disciples, not converts, not people who check a box, but disciples or students, apprentices, followers. Make disciples of all nations, baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you and behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. You see, at some level, for all of us as followers of Jesus have no control on making converts. We have a responsibility to share our faith, but if you don't know anything yet, let me inform you, you don't have control over anybody else. You can't make anybody do anything, really. You can guide them, you can labor alongside them, but you can't make them. But when the Spirit begins to work in our life, there's a second depictor on what Christ says. He says, baptize them, so help them go public with their faith. And then second is teaching them to observe. That word literally means learn how to do what Jesus told you to do. Just learn how to do what Jesus said to do. Our responsibility as followers of Jesus to other followers of Jesus is to walk alongside people, instructing them or teaching them to learn how to do what Jesus said to do. It's a gradual process of transformation. 2 Corinthians 3.18 is another spot where Paul uses this word. And he says it like this. He says, in all we all with unveiled faces beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another for this comes from the Lord who is spirit. You see, there is the same image, Jesus Christ. And we're all progressing towards that image. And it says with unveiled or uncovered, exposed with all of our mess, all of our baggage, You see, we're the only group of people in the universe that are totally comfortable in saying we're all messed up. We all have a a goal in mind, being Christ Jesus. With uncovered or exposed face, beholding or fixing our attention on one degree of glory to another this progressive transformation that we're moving more and more closer and closer to become more like Jesus. You see, our life change starts with faith in Jesus. Our life change is continued by looking at Jesus. Our life change is sustained by the power of Jesus. And our life change goal is to look more like Jesus. And the life change end or the finish line is to be with Jesus. You see, the whole point of this thing is to have life change, not to check a box, but to pursue a person. You see, we want to see God glorified through life change, us looking more and more like Jesus. And why does that matter? It's for the good of Jonesboro and beyond. To make disciples of every nation, where does the gospel start? It starts with Jesus. Where does the gospel stop? Nowhere. The gospel starts with Jesus, but it doesn't stop anywhere. And we are, this is done by us becoming something noticeably different. And the product is know what God wants. What's the end of Romans 12 to say? It says that by testing, you may discern what the will of God is, what is good and acceptable and perfect. We'll know what he said. We'll know how to do what he said to do and live how he called us to live. Jesus, in one other place, 
Paul just picking up on Jesus here. I'll, I'll read you the, the verse in Matthew 22. Jesus is asked this question by some religious leaders. Hey, what's the greatest commandment? What, what's the end all be all? And their, their heart and their motivation is to catch Jesus in this trap. To catch Jesus in this catch 22 of, ah, I knew he was wrong. I knew he was a false teacher. But Jesus stumps them because he doesn't give them one, but he gives them two commands. He says this, and he said to them, Matthew twenty two thirty seven, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the greatest, the great and first commandment. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two depend all the law and the prophets. Or in other words, the entire Old Testament. Love God, love others. Love God, love others. As we begin to close out this morning, I want to give you three application points to wrestle with in this text of our goal to see God glorified through life change, the good of Jonesboro and beyond. As you process this next year, 2024, I want to give you three things. The first thing is this, is how do you want to see life change in your life in this next year? And here's what I mean. How do you want to see God show up and work in your life so this time next year, you look more like him than you did right now. I'm not talking about God showing up in other ways. I mean, it's beautiful. God shows up, God shows up. That's amazing. But the, the question is, is what fruit of the spirit or characteristic of Jesus do you want more prevalent in your life over this next year? Is it humility, grace, joy, love, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control? How do you want to look more like Jesus over this next year? And you're going to need God's help in order to actually do that. Your willpower is good, but it ain't that good. How do you want to see God move in your life this next year? What characteristic of Jesus, what life change element do you want in your life? How do you want God to show up? Second thing, who's someone in your life that you want God to show up in theirs? Who's someone in your life that you want God to show up in theirs? It could be a coworker, an employee, a friend, a student, a neighbor, a family member, your child. It could be a whole host of people. But who's somebody in your life that you desire God to show up in theirs? Subpoint in that question, how might God want you to be the agent that he uses to show up? Last thing, number three. In light of processing all this, sometimes when we talk about the future, it can look so daunting that we forget about how God's moved in the past. What are ways that you can be thankful to God through prayer for how he's already been at work through your whole story. How he's already been changing you and shaping you and transforming you and you haven't even noticed it yet. Everyone else notices around you, but you haven't even noticed it yet. Hey, a couple of years ago, you were, you had anger. Maybe you got a little bit still left in you, but man, you used to have some bad anger or you used to have anxiety about the future and you, you don't have that anymore. And you've just kind of forgotten because you just moved down this journey of following Jesus and he's been working. How can you prayerfully, as we 
sing and worship together? How can you prayerfully just allow the Holy Spirit to bring thoughts and memories to mind about that he's already been at work and how can you be grateful and thankful for that? Three things. How do you want God to move in your life moving forward? Who's somebody else that you can be thinking intentionally about praying for and engaging with? Number three, how can you be thankful for God working in the midst of it all? I'm gonna pray for us. We're gonna sing, we're gonna worship. If you'd like prayer team members to pray with you and for you, they'll be at the back, my right and left, your right and left, if you'd want somebody to pray with you and for you. But we're all gonna stand and we're gonna sing and worship together. Let me pray for us and then we'll worship. Father God, we thank you for who you are. We're grateful for Jesus and how he's, always been at work, how you've always been at work. You work through the power of your word. You stay faithful to every promise you've ever made. We pray for this next year that you would make us and mold us to look more like you. Jesus, may you get all the honor, the glory, and the credit for everything that takes place. May we progress towards you from one image to the next, from one degree of glory to another. As we worship you, would you bring up thoughts to our mind of past memories and people and in ways that you desire to still move and still work in ways that you've been moving and been working. And may we acknowledge that. May we not just acknowledge it, but may we live in light of it. Thank you for calling us your sons and daughters. In Christ's name, amen. Would you stand and sing?